You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I realize that a key component of this is attitudes and the recognition by people who have power and by people who make policy to actually acknowledge the disparities that are there. Exciting career changes could be in your future, but what does that mean for your wealth? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Get the expertise you need to help you dream more, demand more, and do more. Hey everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. Today we're going to take a brief walk through history before we tackle the future because sometimes it's important to think about where we've been before we decide where we're going next. If I said the name Sarah Breedlove to you, would you know who that was? She was better known as the icon Madam C.J. Walker, and she was the first female self-made millionaire in the United States. Not the black first female self-made millionaire, the first self-made female millionaire. She made history selling hair care products. And while her legacy is lasting, how she got her start is truly remarkable. She was born on a plantation to former slaves. She didn't start her business until age 38 after working as a cotton sharecropper, a laundress, and in many other service roles that were available to Black women at that time. When she started her company, she exclusively employed women as the sales agents for her products. And at its height, the company employed 20,000 women across the country during a time when most all salespeople were men. She also led business trainings for groups of female entrepreneurs and businesswomen in the hopes that their camaraderie would make them all stronger and more successful. I hope that sounds a little familiar to the listeners at Her Money. I could go on for days about her incredible life and legacy. But I'm going to let someone far more qualified than me take it from here. I'm thrilled to introduce Alelia Bundle. She is the great-great-granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker and the brand historian for Madam by Madam C.J. Walker, which is a new hair care brand launched in January of this year to carry on Madam C.J.'s legacy and help style a new generation. Alelia is also an author. She is a journalist, three decades strong. Her book, On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, is a New York Times notable book and the source material for Self Made, the four-part Netflix series starring Oscar winner Octavia Spencer. Alelia also founded the Madam Walker Family Archives. She's on several nonprofit boards, including the Schlesinger Library on the History of Women in America at Harvard's Radcliffe Institute and the Smithsonian's American Women's History Initiative. Alelia, welcome. It's so nice to have you here today. Jean, I'm so glad to be with you. Thank you for that lovely introduction. 
Of course. I got to tell you, I almost don't know where to start because there is so much that we could talk about. But let's fast forward to today and start with the launch of Madam by Madam C.J. Walker, which is the new line of hair care products developed in partnership with Sundial Brands and Walmart. Can you tell us what it's been like to follow in your great-grandmother's footsteps so directly and what this process has been like for you? Well, it's very exciting to have this line, Madam by Madam C.J. Walker, and to know that we are paying homage to Madam Walker's original idea of healthy scalp makes healthy hair, gives us styling versatility. But I will tell you, the last thing I thought I would be doing at this stage in my life is a hair care product. My parents were both in the hair care industry. My mother was vice president of the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company. My dad was president, actually, of another black hair care company. My passion was writing, and they encouraged me to be a writer. So I had a long journalism career. But in graduate school at Columbia in journalism, my advisor for my master's paper recognized my name, Alelia, and realized that I had a connection to Madam C.J. Walker and her daughter, Alelia Walker. And when I was thrashing around for topics, she said, you have your topic. That's what you're going to write about. So that was 50 years ago, almost. And I began to write about her and to tell her story. So this is now perfect full circle where telling her story made more people aware of her and has allowed us to reintroduce a line of hair care products inspired by her. What do you think it is about your great-great-grandmother that makes her so resonant today? So there, when I, you know, because I've spent all of these years doing this research about her, and I have learned and deepened my understanding over time. So what most people knew about Madam Walker is she made hair care products, and there were Walker sales agents. So that's kind of the beginning. But for me, it is really widening that lens and realizing that she made a hair care product that was something that women needed at the time. They were going bald because hygiene was really different. They were losing their hair. She developed a shampoo to cleanse your scalp and then an ointment like Vaseline with sulfur that healed the scalp infections and hair could grow back. So that's step one. She said, first you have to have a high quality product. But in the process of traveling all over the United States and the Caribbean and Central America, as she was training women and developing this army of sales agents, I think she realized that the women, yes, they wanted a hair care product that worked for them, but what they needed was education and economic independence at a time when most black women who work were either working as farmers or who were working as domestics, as maids, as cooks, as laundresses. So she embodied this idea of a great product, but it's there's a whole matrix of outcomes that she was wishing for. Yes, a product, but to be economically independent so you could buy homes and educate your children. And then she took it to the next level, which was to organize those women into a national organization with annual conventions where she talked about sales and she gave them tips on developing their business. But she also made them a political force. At her first national convention in 1917, she told the women, your first duty is to humanity. I want others to look at us and realize that we care not just about ourselves, but about others. 
And at the end of the convention, the women sent a telegram to President Woodrow Wilson urging him to support legislation to make lynching a federal crime. And that political consciousness, along with that economic independence, even continued into the 1960s when some of the people who helped pay for the buses to go to the March on Washington in 1963 were Walker agents. We're at yet another point in the history of this country where women's rights are under attack, where it is indisputable that this will hurt women economically. As you look through the lens of your great-great-grandmother's history and all the history that has followed, what is your take on what's going on in the world right now? And do you think that women have the ability to use our economic power to create the world we want to see? It's very important for us to understand this history with women. And one of the reasons that Madam Walker was so determined to help women is that she saw, you know, obviously she was focused on Black women, women of color, and they had very little opportunity. They couldn't control, not just, you know, because she grew up, her parents and her older siblings were enslaved. So they didn't even control their bodies, period. And then as a young mother, you know, certainly, you know, my guess, I don't know this for sure, but my guess is that she might have been pregnant more than once. She had one child that was very unusual for that period of time. Women knew about birth control. Women had all kinds of ways that they were able to end a pregnancy during the late 1800s, early 1900s. She would have known other women. And women faced with how they were going to raise their children when there was very little economic opportunity. If you had to work as a a maid or a laundress, you might be making a dollar a week. And one woman wrote to her, she got all of these testimonial letters, and one woman wrote to her and said, you have made it possible for a Black woman to make more money in a day selling your products than she could in a month working in somebody's kitchen. So she knew economic independence was important. And we know from the various studies that are being done now that have been done, that when women cannot control their reproductive life, they cannot control their economic life. And one thing we saw during the pandemic was women back in the house because children were being homeschooled, older parents needed care, somebody had to be home. And in most cases, that was going to be the woman for economic reasons. Women still under-earn their spouses. Women of color still earn even less. What we saw as a result was this jolt in entrepreneurship, particularly among Black women. When we look at the statistics on the number of small businesses, and all businesses are small at the outset, started during the pandemic, Black women were really leading the way. Do you think that the route to economic security, particularly for women and even more particularly for women of color, is still through entrepreneurship? You know, entrepreneurship, that is the great wealth builder. The wealth building was disrupted in the Black community because of federal policies like redlining that made 
impossible to get an equity loan to improve your house and that banks wouldn't lend money in entire neighborhoods if somebody Black lived in them. So that avenue for wealth creation that has been available to white Americans for the last century has been available to only a few African-Americans. So one way to jumpstart the next generation is to create businesses. And we know the time honored way is you create a business, it becomes successful, you might sell it to somebody else and then you start another one. But that is an opportunity for women. I think with Madam Walker, one of the things that she was trying to do was to give women an opportunity where their client base was other black women so they could rely on that. But also if they wanted to, they could have their business in their home. Mm-hmm. That meant they could be there for their children. That meant they didn't have to work in somebody else's home. That meant they were safe from whatever kind of abuse or attack they might have gotten in working in the homes of somebody else. But that way they could really control their lives and watch their children. And women, you know, episodically, as you know, sometimes they need to be at home at a certain stage of a child's life if they're not able to afford a nanny or high-priced daycare. But this gave women an opportunity. And I think during the pandemic, it allowed people to kind of lean into that side passion, that side hustle that they had always wanted to do. I'm thinking of the conventions that I've been at as a speaker for companies that have as their sales force armies of women who are essentially running their own small businesses. I've been at Stella and Dot, for example. I've been at Cabby. These are all businesses that took a legacy from your grandmother. These are all businesses that took the lessons of Madam Walker and carried them forward. What do you think are the most important business lessons and financial lessons that she taught her 20,000 women. When she had these conventions, regional conventions, national conventions, she was really trying to help women manage their money. So they even had little financial diaries. They had bylaws. So she said, you need to make sure that you are saving your money, that you're reinvesting in the company. Open a bank account. So, you know, really basic things for women during that period of time. But she also made them understand that it is important to have a good lawyer. Mm. And that made a huge difference for her. Having a lawyer is something that is just, it seems like it's so expensive. It's not something that people are used to doing. They're not quite sure what's the difference between this kind of lawyer, that kind of lawyer. But she, part of, I think, her enduring success and part of her legacy is that she identified Freeman B. Ransom as her attorney. And he would today, she called him her general manager, but today he'd be the CFO, the CIO, the CTO, the lead general counsel. He really embodied all of those roles. That was really critical. A couple of other things that I think are important. She surrounded herself with a staff, including her attorney. The manager of her factory had been the dean of girls at a black boarding school. There were other people on the staff who complemented her skills. She was a self-educated woman, but she surrounded herself with people who had these skills who were very talented. And she was also really excellent at identifying other leaders. As she traveled around, she would give a speech 
And she had a version of a PowerPoint. So she would be all over Instagram. I think she understood (laughs) the importance of visuals to tell your story, to illustrate your story. So she had something called a stereopticon, which was a projector of glass slides and it projected onto the wall or onto a screen. And she would go to a town, take out an ad in the newspaper a week or so before. And she would say, I'm going to be speaking at this church or this community center And she would give a lecture to a large group of people, you know, before movies and and television. This was a big deal. Somebody's coming and doing an illustrated slide lecture. And she would talk to a large group of people. And she had photos, not just of her hair care products, but of black schools and businesses and famous people. So she generated some excitement about her visit. And then when she finished that big lecture, she would meet with a smaller group of women, maybe eight to 10 women in the basement of the church or in another small room. And she would demonstrate the Madame Walker method of hair care, of beauty culture. And she would see who was the woman who asked the best questions? Who did the other women look towards? Who had some leadership ability? Who had some charisma? And she would make that person her lead agent. And then she would move on to the next town and do the same thing. But that was the person to whom she would ship the products to distribute to the other women. That was the person she counted on to be the lead person and probably to be the delegate to the convention. So great product, know how to do your finances, make sure you have a good lawyer, <laughs> surround yourself with people who are smarter than you in the areas where you aren't so, you know, where you have deficits and make sure that you identify leaders who can help carry your message. Such good lessons and such incredibly timeless lessons. One of the things that we know statistically, and as I said, in the United States right now, there are many Black women who are in the process of starting or running a new business, 17% of Black women compared to just 10% of white women and 15% of white men. And today, Black women represent 42% of new women-owned businesses and 36% of all Black-owned businesses that have employees. The problem is only 3% of Black women are running mature businesses that are successful at the five-year mark. So what do you think happens between these incredible starts and the drop-off? Well, they're not getting venture capital funds. Yeah. I mean, that's a really key part. So so scaling up and being able to expand your business. Now we have supply chain issues. It's capital. It's not having enough capital to survive to the next level, to be able to manufacture on a scale that allows you to continue to grow your business. And, you know, and they're fortunately, they're, Madam Walker's legacy does inspire other people. I'm, it's really, you know, exciting for me that, Richelieu Dennis, who was the founding CEO of Sundial Brands, when Rich sold uh, Sundial to Unilever. Now, you know, now Kara Sabin is the, is the CEO. But Rich took some of those proceeds from that sale of Sundial Brands and bought Essence, an Essence Festival, and also created a venture capital fund called New Voices that invests 
primarily in black women's businesses. You know, he's expanded it because I think some men were like, what about us? But it is, he is very much focused on women-owned businesses. And there are some of those companies, the McBride Sisters Winery, Slutty Vegan is getting lots and lots of press, Mayel Cosmetics. So that has to happen, that investment in venture capital. There is another organization called Walker's Legacy, that really works with women across the economic spectrum in helping them scale up their businesses, helping them write business plans. So those are two areas where I'm really happy that that Madam Walker has inspired investment and training opportunities. I want to talk, Alelia, about generational wealth. But before we do that, let me just remind everyone that we are proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. And whether you are up with the sun or burning the midnight oil, you work hard to excel in your career. We know this. It took grit, just like Madam C.J. Walker had. It took determination. It took skill to get to where you are today. But what if things change? Maybe you want to open your first business, go for that big promotion, move for your dream job. How does that affect your wealth and your financial life? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today because with an integrated approach to wealth management, you'll get the expertise that you need to build momentum, not just with your finances, but with your career as well. I'm talking with Alelia Bundles. She is the brand historian for Madam C.J. Walker, also her great-great-granddaughter. Let's talk about generational wealth, specifically Black generational wealth. We know wealth is vastly unequally distributed across the United States for many of the reasons that you already mentioned, going back to redlining and the other inequities. Black Americans possess 2.6% of the nation's wealth. They constitute 13% of the population. And the average Black household has a net worth $800,000 lower than the average white households. I mean, these statistics just make me ill. So I wanted to ask, what do you think needs to be done to eliminate the racial wealth gap, the Black wealth gap, and move past these sorts of disparities that we see, not just with generational wealth, but with home ownership and so much more? You know, there are the obvious answers about financial things, about, you know, making sure that people can get loans from banks, making sure that their neighborhoods are not devalued or undervalued so that they can create wealth for the next generation, because it really is home ownership and being able to own one house, buy a house in one generation for $30,000 and sell it in the next generation for 1.5 million. And that, those are real numbers about the value of homes. But th- you know, that's sort of making sure that there are job opportunities, making sure that people have jobs where they're getting stock options, where they have retirement funds. Those are the sort of really basic, what are the financial ways that people can create generational wealth. The longer I live, I just turned 70 and Thank you. You know, hey, my mom taught me how to do that skincare early on. But the more I learn and the more I combine my understanding of history with my understanding of Madam Walker's life and the benefits that I've had, had a career in corporate America for 30 years, the more I realize that a key component of this is attitudes. 
and the recognition by people who have power and by people who make policy to actually acknowledge the disparities that are there. And sadly, there is a real backlash right now about just not even wanting to teach history, to teach accurate history. It is confounding to me. I went to high school in the late 1960s and I had a great public school education in the suburbs of Indianapolis, you know, great schools, great teachers. But my high school history textbook, the only time black people were mentioned was as slaves, not enslaved people, as we now say, but slaves. And it literally said the slaves were contented and they were better off because they were clothed and fed. And that was a particular philosophy of teaching history that was really based on something called the Dunning School, a professor at Columbia. And then the, literally the Daughters of the Confederacy influenced the textbooks all over America. And that was the narrative that they wanted to push that, oh, the, you know, those black people are just like they were slaves and they were happy. Well, that was not true. I was the only black kid in my class. And my memory is feeling really embarrassed because I didn't have, I couldn't push back on it because I didn't know. But I've spent the last 50 years educating myself. And I thought we had gotten to the point now where education is more diverse and kids are learning a little bit of this and a little bit of that so that everybody's an American, everybody contributed. But this backlash within the last couple of years to bury that history once again, I think puts us back at square one. We were progressing where people were recognizing. So if you don't acknowledge that somebody is an equal American, if you're whether you're white or black or Latino or Asian American, if you don't recognize the humanity of people, then you don't think they are deserving of being treated equally. So it's psychological, it's emotional, and it's not something that most people are thinking about, but it makes a real difference if you are saying, do I hire this person? Maybe this policy should be changed to make sure that those people are no longer discriminated against. So it's both what's going on in your mind that helps inform policy, as well as the actual policies, the banking laws, the federal laws, all of those things that make a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. And it has to be, it has to be pushed through all levels, I think, and through all sorts of institutions. Corporations have a large responsibility in deciding who they hire, who they promote, you know, when it comes to racial equity and gender equity. They do. I mean, and I thought, you know, when, when after George Floyd, you know, I, I was doing a lot of corporate conversations and people were doing their DEI thing. And it was like, you know, we're at an inflection point. There's this a day of reckoning. And I just, I thought, yes, I really hope so. But I also know that whenever there's that kind of progress, there's a backlash that somebody gets annoyed. They think they're the, the whole replacement theory thing. They think they're being replaced. And I don't see it that way. I see it as we're just embracing everybody. But true to form, that backlash has happened. And I'm really, really applauding the corporations that have said that they're just going to keep a shoulder to the wheel and keep pushing that it is really important because the companies do benefit when there is diversity in all the ranks. I was this past weekend, I was in Cincinnati. One of my best friends, I was at a wedding for a best friend's daughter and she's an executive at Hard Rock Cafe. And so that, you know, you, that employs all kinds of folks across all kinds of levels. And it was just wonderful to me to be 
in the casino, in the restaurant, and to really see that they are face forward in making sure that their workforce is diverse. Yeah, 100%. I want to turn to the overall economy of the United States, which has been, I think, to say shaky lately, and that's putting it mildly. There are a lot of predictions that because of the rate of inflation, because the Federal Reserve may not be able to bring us in for a soft landing, we could be headed for recession. Oftentimes, when we talk about bracing ourselves for tough economic times, we return to the lessons of our grandmothers, of our great-grandmothers, of our great-great-grandmothers. So I wanted to ask, what are some lessons from Madam Walker that we might take with us as we live through the uncertain times that we're going through right now? Well, a couple of things. Is, you know, She knew that property, owning real estate was really important, and that is the engine of generational wealth. And so she was beginning to invest in real estate. Her business was successful, but over that decade when she was really building that business, she was so successful that a lot of other people started the same kinds of businesses. So she said, well, look, I can see this is getting to be a crowded field. So I need to have other investments. And so she understood the importance of owning property. So I think that's really key. But it is also being making sure that your investments are going to last over time. Now, that was a generation that didn't have, for Black women, didn't have pensions. But she made sure that her employees had paid vacations, that they learned how to save their money, that they learned how to invest. So all of that is really important. And education was very important to her, the beginning in education. Of course, there are a couple of things that she was pushing but she didn't she could not have predicted some of the ways that those ideas would be thwarted education now is a double edged sword for a lot of people because of student debt and that cuts into the ability to create generational wealth owning a home if you aren't able to pay for it or if you're in over your head can be a double edged sword but those kinds of things are important but i will say in addition to madam walker i learned lessons from not just from Madam Walker, because believe it or not, we did not sit around the dining room table talking about Madam Walker while my mom went to work there every day. But I learned a couple of lessons from my other members of my family. My father grew up in a family where they, you know, they were really struggling economically. He was born in 1927 during the Depression. He was the seventh of nine children. His parents were not educated. His father was a laborer who worked on the Pennsylvania Railroad. But he always had a side hustle. He was always doing something else to make money. And he had a pension from the railroad. My mother's father was a second generation college graduate. He and his father had both gone to a historically black college, Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. My grandfather was a lawyer. He went to University of Pittsburgh Law School. But my grandfather invested a lot in the stock market, but he was kind of a risk taker. So when I saw these two people, I don't know if this is the tortoise and the hare lesson, but my grandfather, who had been the laborer, had more money in the bank when he died than my grandfather, who was the lawyer. So some of those lessons are, you know, make sure that you are saving money. And my father gave me this lesson when I, my first year in college, I came home with a credit card bill, mostly because I bought record albums. <laughs> And he said, before you go back to school in September, you will have paid off this bill. 
And I was working in his office, but I had to pay that bill. And the lesson to me was don't just rack up those credit card bills. And mm-hmm. so I have always, there are a few little rough spots here and there where I didn't pay the full bill on time, but that has been a goal of mine. And I would say for the last 40 years, I have done that, pay off that bill every month. And the other lesson for me that has, you know, sort of cumulatively from all of these people in my family is to always have enough money in the bank that if you have to leave, you can. Now that can be Mm -hmm. personal. I've never had to run away from a personal situation, but I have had times in my career where I really was unhappy and I never had to just like quit on the dime. But if I had had to, I had enough money, but it also allowed me to leave corporate America when I was ready to leave, that I had put some money away so that I could walk out the door when I was ready. And for me, that's very important. It is such And that might be if you're starting a business, you know, you have that money set aside. Yeah, no, it's important in your career. It's important in your relationship. It's incredibly important advice for women. I've got to ask before we let you go, Self-Made, the miniseries based on information from your book, how much did they get right? And did you like it? (laughs) So, you know, that is a complicated question. So, Octavia Spencer was great. Blair Underwood was great. It was really wonderful to see them on screen. And every time Octavia came on, I just loved the way that she embodied Madam Walker's determination. The wigs were great because a lot of times the wigs for black women's hair kind of bad in Hollywood movies. But there were and there were some scenes that I love. But, you know, it is inspired by, as Hollywood says, my book On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker. But it is not very historically accurate. And, you know, and I had, I've le- honestly, I had some fights with the showrunners and the writer because I really wanted it to be a story of empowerment and how other women empowered Madam Walker. And they kind of leaned into kind of a cliched cat fight between two women and they made the, you know, conflict over skin color. It really wasn't. And Madam Walker's competitor, Annie Malone, was also a very successful woman, not a drug addict. <laughs> and the way that they portrayed her, I mean, it's like, no, why go there? Alelia Walker didn't have a girlfriend. I, you know, they just really went, like, they went way, way off my script. So it is complicated for me. I know that it means that a lot more people know Madam Walker's name. And for people who really don't know, they are inspired and they are entertained but I'm working on, I'm almost finished with the first major biography of Alelia Walker, which will be out next year. And I'm hoping to get another bite at the apple, you know, whether on the TV screen, the big screen or on the stage. Well, we are going to keep our eyes peeled for that. Alelia Bundles, thank you so much for being here today. It's a total pleasure. Thank you. We'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag, but let me just remind everyone that Her Money is supported by BCU. BCU is one of the nation's fastest growing credit unions. It helps members make smart financial decisions by offering the products, services, and caring support that members need for whatever stage of life they're in. Find out if you're eligible to join BCU by visiting bcu.org. And Catherine Tuggle from Her Money joins me now. Hey, Catherine. Hi, Jean. That was a terrific conversation. Thank you for teeing it up. And I love, 
I, you know, sometimes I think we give men short shrift on this show. I love that she had so many great lessons from her father. It made me think she has her own rich dad, poor dad book brewing in her. Yeah, it's so true. We did a piece on her money for Father's Day about the best financial advice that fathers have given daughters. And I thought it was one of our more compelling pieces. You know, I think that when we look at how men can be advocates for their daughters and men can be advocates for women, I think there's so many lessons there that benefit women and men. Yeah. A hundred percent. And you never know exactly where the lessons are going to come from. I think many of my most important career lessons came from my father. My money lessons came from my mother because she was the investor in the family and she managed the money. And that was sort of I mean, I got a lot of important career lessons from my mother as well in that she reinvented herself every time we moved to a new town and struck out and just sold herself into whatever new job or challenge she wanted to take on, but many from my father too. Yeah, I loved everything she had to say and everything she had to say about tough economic times, living through a recession. There's so many of those great grandmother lessons to incorporate, particularly right now. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. We've got some mailbag questions, so let's dive in. We do. Our first question today comes to us from a member of our Private Harmony Facebook group. She writes, I need advice. Bad. I've been at my job for 20 years come September. I have a small 401k. I raised three kids on my own and never married. I make just enough to live comfortably while I'm working to afford a mortgage, car, utilities, and food with a little extra on the side for clothes, grandchildren, and leisure. My credit is excellent. I don't really use my credit card, so no debt there. Property tax is $4,500 a year. I have a four-bedroom home with a good $100,000 in equity, and my youngest son graduates high school in June of 2023. I'm wondering... Should I sell my house now? The house is full of everyone's crap, and where would I move? I don't like bugs, noise, and I don't want to have to pay an HOA, so that pretty much counts out an apartment. I'm tired of maintaining my home and yard. Here's another kicker. I have a gut feeling my company is going to close its doors in the next year or so, and I landed my job when it was a family-owned business. Now it's a bigger corporation owned by a larger firm in Germany. I have no degree, although I do all accounts receivable, accounts payable, banking, payroll, import, export, sales, and purchasing for two locations. I'm assuming I won't find another job like this without a degree? I don't know. I want to move and learn to save better. Any advice you may have is greatly appreciated. Thank you. I've got to say, I think you have really good timing. Although I know it's feeling like you are up against it in more ways than one. We are still in a really, really hot housing market where there is a shortage of supply and still looking at an economy with 11 million unfilled jobs. So before you do actually do anything, I would approach these as two separate challenges, and I would start doing some really focused research in both of them. The first thing I'd look at is that house of yours. Invite a realtor in 
I mean, clean it up a little bit if you can. Get all the, you called it crap, but get all the stuff cleared out as much as possible. Clean it up so it looks as good as possible. And ask if you were to put this house on the market, what they would list it for, just to give yourself an idea. And then use that number and maybe draw a circle, a radius, where you would be comfortable moving And start going to some open houses and looking at real estate listings in that area. Clearly, you don't need a four-bedroom home. Maybe you could have a two-bedroom home or a two-bedroom with a den. And it doesn't have to be in a homeowner's association. It could just be a smaller house that would allow you to put more equity into it, maybe take some of the equity and put it into an IRA or another brokerage account to get you further ahead on savings and retirement. You've got something of value that other people want right now. So let's see how we can make some hay out of it. Same is true with your job. Don't quit, but get your resume together. If it's been a long time, and it probably has since you even wrote a resume or made a LinkedIn profile, start pulling that together. Maybe get one of your kids to help you if you're concerned or confused about how to do it. We also have a ton of resources at hermoney.com about how to write a LinkedIn profile, how to write a good resume. And then start looking around for jobs in that same radius of places that you might want to live. You don't have to quit, but you can start interviewing while you still have this job. And you absolutely should. You know, the fact that you've been at this job for such a long time probably means that you are dramatically underpaid. And the nice thing about this set of skills that you laid out is that you could use them anywhere. You want to go work in healthcare? Healthcare needs these skills. Healthcare is hiring and healthcare needs these skills. You want to work in technology? Great. Technology is hiring. Technology companies need these skills. Manufacturing, infrastructure, you name it. You could work anywhere. You could literally work anywhere. So I would just put some feelers out there. I I would start looking. I would start interviewing You may be a little bit rough at first. That's okay. Keep going and see what happens. And by the way, don't keep either of these things to yourself. I wouldn't necessarily talk to your colleagues about it, but I'd talk to your friends. I'd talk to people in your community. I'd talk to people in your church if you go to church. I'd talk to people that you know who might be able to help you find something better. And when you get that job, you want to make sure that it's a job that has good benefits. You want to make sure that you've got good health care and a good retirement plan because it's going to be important for you to sock more money away in this new scenario than you've been socking away now. And I hope that that helps. But I think you sound kind of demoralized and I think you should sound excited. Yeah, absolutely. I see that this could be a new chapter for you. And honestly, your skills are so translatable. Just like we've been hearing that people care less and less about degrees as long as you bring the skills to the table. So please try not to get, you know, too discouraged by not having a degree because it is not everything. 100%. 
Our next question today comes to us from Chelsea in Sacramento. She writes, I can't even believe I'm saying this, but I'm thinking of buying a Tesla. The cheapest model with the specs I want is going to run me around 40000 and I could spend that much on a crappy Camry. The thing is, there are cheaper vehicles out there that would cost me closer to 25000 so it's not like someone has a gun to my head forcing me to buy a Tesla. But I love the idea of saving the planet and saving on gas money. I have a decent commute in California. I often get stuck in traffic, so I estimate I would save 300 a month on gas. The only thing is that I only earn 85000 a year, and it seems a little ridiculous to buy a car that's more than half my annual salary. I don't know. It just doesn't sit right with me for some reason, even though I think it might be the most affordable car for me in the long run. Is there some kind of calculator that could help me decide what kind of car to get or how much to spend? I know these exist for housing. Thank you for a great show. So thank you, first of all, so much for writing. I love this question because I've been thinking about it too. Not necessarily right now, but I know that my next car is going to be an electric car. I'm just waiting a little while longer for the battery life to catch up with what I need. And for the car that I currently have to, well, die is a bad word, but you know, I've got, everybody knows, I think by this point I have a Volvo and it has about 90,000 miles on it. It's fine. It is, you know, aside from the fact that it uses gas instead of electricity, there is pretty much nothing wrong with this car. I should knock on something because tomorrow that everything's going to break. But for right now, I am just holding on to this car because I don't see a great reason to invest the money in, in a new one. And so that's my first question for you. What is going on with your current car? If right now you have a car that is paid off, I understand that the price of the Tesla is incredibly expensive and it seems incredibly expensive compared with what you make. But once you factor out that $300 a month on gas, it's not nearly as expensive. And there are used Teslas available. Yes, the technology is changing very quickly and you wanna make sure that whatever car you buy is gonna give you the battery life that you need. But you don't have to buy this car like any car brand new. You can absolutely buy it used. The other thing that I would say is that there are other electric cars. There are more and more electric cars coming online every single year. So if you've got a car that you are using right now that is paid off, I'd take the opportunity to just create a car fund. And you can use that to defray some of the cost of whatever car you end up buying. If not, go in search of a used Tesla or a used electric car that suits your needs. Add the cost of gas to the monthly payment on that car and See if it's in the affordable range. You know, everything that I'm reading, and I'm, believe me, I am reading a lot about these cars, is that they are going to last a very, very long time. So as long as you are willing to continue to maintain it and continue to drive it, you'll get through the part of paying for it 
and you'll get to the point where you have this mode of transportation that isn't costing you anything beyond the cost of charging it, which is just very little compared with the cost of gasoline today. So that's sort of where my head is on that. But again, used rather than new, be willing to do the maintenance and just keep it a really long time. And I don't necessarily think that this is a bad way to go. Agreed, Jean. Thank you so much. I, I love yeah. this rundown. I think probably a lot of people are thinking about this. I mean, yeah, a lot of people are thinking of it right now. The only other thing that I was thinking about is that that $300 may be based on $5 a gallon gas prices. And, you know, hopefully we get to the point where gas is a little bit less. Right now, there is a run on electric cars. Right now, because of gas prices, electric cars are just flying off the shelves. And so if you can wait until the scenario has settled down a little bit, I do think you're going to get a slightly better deal. Amazing. Thank you, Jean. Thank you so much. And in today's Thrive, taking a vacation is supposed to be fun. Getting away from it all for a few days is sometimes just what we need to relax and reset. And 70% of people intend to drop more dollars traveling this year than we did in the past five years. Considering prices for hotel rooms are up by 30%, that makes a little bit of sense. One thing we're hearing about a lot at hermoney.com is friends deciding they are going to vacation together for the first time in a long time. It gets interesting when you're on a different budget than your friend happens to be, but that doesn't mean that you don't have an amazing getaway to look forward to. It just means you have to do some special planning first. First thing to do, discuss any budget constraints that you may have before even planning your trip. Having all the details ironed out ahead of time is key to ensuring that you don't spend more or less than you'd like on a vacation. There's no shame in being upfront about your budget, so there's no awkwardness later on. Maybe you and your friend decide to compromise on your spending for certain days of the trip. Perhaps you alternate save and splurge days. On splurge days, you may go on a pricier outing or take a trip to a spa. And on save days, you may just stroll and take in the sights. When it comes to food, again, think save days and splurge days. On those save days, if you just grab a quick bite from a cafe or a food truck, you could end up spending $40 or less on those days. Speaking of food, asking restaurants to provide separate bills is another way to stay on track if your friend spends differently than you do. That way, you're never stuck paying for her bottomless brunch or filet mignon or vice versa. Also, keep in mind that apps can really help with cost splitting for pretty much everything. And since they allow you to send your friend requests for money or reminders, they help ensure you actually get paid. It's not just Venmo these days. Check out Splitwise, Zelle, and PayPal all of which are easy to use and free. The last thing you want to be worried about on vacation is who owes who what. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Alilia Bundles for a great conversation on 
entrepreneurship, on legacy, and on family. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.